Good morning, church family. A joy to be together in God's house as we conclude the last book of the Old Testament. This book is rightly placed at the end of the Old Testament canon, and these words would have echoed through the 400 years of intertestamental silence as God's people awaited Messiah. For those of you who are joining us this morning, perhaps for the first time, we've been moving through the expositional preaching of God's Word through the book of Malachi. We've learned that Malachi, as God's messenger, has presented ongoing allegations against his people of covenant unfaithfulness. We've moved through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, and we've seen allegations where God has called his people to give account for their sins. And today, we see that the prosecution rests. The covenant disobedience that God has addressed over and over again through this book, he rests. And we'll, we'll pick up with some good news in that God's people take stock of all that he's brought against them in terms of accusations. The reading of of God's word will begin with, today, Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Before you stand, I, I just want you to reflect on this as we ask the Lord in beginning. After all of the things that God's people have been accused of, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. This is remarkable, all the things that God through his messenger has said, the people miraculously took stock. And that's my invitation to you as we consider all that we've learned. Many of you have a a bookmark in your hand that will remind you of what we've seen in terms of God's charges against his people. We've seen from the beginning, God's people questioned his love for them. Do you love us? And he said, Jacob, I have loved and Esau I have hated. And we moved in and we see that that God confronted his people for giving unacceptable sacrifices. Blind sheep, unacceptable offerings. And we moved through and we saw that even the leadership of God's people are indicted. The priests. They, instead of giving sound biblical advice, offered platitudes or excuses for sin. They preached with partiality, only addressing perhaps the parts of God's word that were convenient for them. Then God deals with the covenant unfaithfulness with marriages in the midst of his people. Those who were considering unequal yokes or those who had been unfaithful in marriages. We saw too that their worship was hypocritical and insincere. So as we begin with these words, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. That is a clear invitation to us to remember and to examine and to ask the Lord to convict us. But there's good news. After weeks of looking at God's chastisement, today the word we see is promise. We've moved through and we've seen that time after time there's covenant unfaithfulness, but today God, as his prosecution rests, declares again his faithfulness to us. So with that, 
Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the, one, between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask that he prepare our hearts to take stock of his great and precious promises. Father God, we come before you humbly. Would you give us a fear and a reverence, Lord God, of your holiness, that we would be mindful of our many offenses against you, and that we would cry out to you, dependent upon your faithfulness to forgive and to redeem. Lord God, would you use me this morning to communicate with clarity all that you have promised, the promises that you have fulfilled already, and the promises yet to be fulfilled, that you might be praised and that you might be heralded as great among the nations. In the matchless name of Jesus, I ask you these things. Amen. So as we begin at verse 16 of Malachi chapter 3, we stand in awe yet again that God in his grace allowed his people to take stock of all that he's brought against them. All of these allegations of their unfaithfulness. A remnant of God's people then says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And just imagine what that'd be like. Just imagine as they felt the conviction of God's word and turned to one another and would repent. Repentance in and of itself is a a work only of God and of, of his Holy Spirit. But more remarkable just than that is that he would hear when we repent, and offer forgiveness. Look at the the next part of this verse, Malachi 3.16. It says, The Lord paid attention and heard them. Just stand in awe of that for just a moment. We've seen as we've moved through this book together, there, there are things that hinder 
our communication with God. Our own sins, as we see in Isaiah chapter 1, make it so that God closes his ears and covers his eyes and doesn't listen to us. But when we repent and we put our sins before him with a posture of repentance, he promises and has promised that he will forgive. Pastor Sean pre-preached the sermon this morning from 2, Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and it's very important that we understand and have in view 2 Chronicles. I'm going to invite you to turn, if you will, to the chapter just before the one we read together, chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles. And I want to tell you that as we learn, God used the time that his people were in Babylon for his purposes. They learned to write down their own history. In fact, they, under the the hand of the Babylonians and later the Persians, would be serving as scribes. They would write down their national history and they wrote down the books of the kings and the books of the chronicles. And then God in his grace sends Ezra back under a mandate from a pagan king to make his law known to his people. So what that means is that the the books of the chronicles were actually probably put in, in written form around about the time the exiles are coming back out of Babylon. And because Temple 2.0 is in view and has been rebuilt, you can rest assured that Chronicles was a bestseller in Malachi's day. This is not a book that was forgotten. This would have been plain view. Reading of Solomon's construction of the temple and the dedication of the temple would have been front of mind for God's people in the day that Malachi was written. So I want you to look at verse 28 of 2 Chronicles chapter 6, if you would. And I want you to see again God's faithful promises. Beginning at verse 28. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all, All your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hand towards his house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Verse 32 Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do all according for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this is the house that I have built is called by your name. This is a remarkable appeal from King Solomon, and as we read in chapter 7, God honors that. He promises that if you turn in repentance, that he'll hear and forgive. It also establishes that God is the one, in verse 30 there, that he'll hear from heaven, and he'll forgive and render to each heart. And he knows each heart. He knows the, the sinful characteristics of the human heart a heart that he alone can convert from stone to a heart of flesh. He promises this forgiveness. 
And so we can't just glance over this verse back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, when it says, the Lord paid attention and heard them. Can you imagine what this would be like for the people in that day? They've seen their captivity because of their sin. They've seen God's faithfulness in restoring them and bringing them back out of captivity. They've seen this temple restored as a place for them to go before the Lord and in fear, speak to one another and confess. And in doing so, he forgives them. Praise God for that faithful promise. That's a promise kept for those of you keeping notes. He paid attention and heard them. And then it says something remarkable. It says, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So this whole writing things down is pretty important in the time of Malachi. What does this mean? Well, we saw in our reading last week uh, from the book of Ezra that as the, the people went through and they examined their own faithful unfaithfulness to God, they put together a book at the end and they wrote down all the names of the people that had reaffirmed their desire to be obedient to the Lord. But this book of remembrance actually comes as a clear reminder of the third and final thing that God wants to tell his people as we move through this. Remember at the beginning we talked about three words that started with the letter I? He charges his people of being guilty of ingratitude. And we saw that. They, they didn't recognize the ways in which God had been loving and faithful towards them. And then throughout all of chapters 1, 2, and 3, they've been guilty of irreverence. They have failed to fear him. And if you don't recall, I'll tell you that the third word that starts with the letter I is inability. It's their inability. It is their inability to even identify their own sins, much less repent without his intervention. More importantly, the forgiveness of sins is only possible through God's work. Now, I'm going to take you to the last verse, second to the last verse of the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. An unusual way to end the Old Testament. God says to his people, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Think about all of redemptive history. How many times were they given the law? And, and how many times were they faithful to obey the law? They blew it over and over and over again. 613 laws in the Mosaic writings. And God distills it down to 10. Perhaps surely you can keep 10 of the commandments, right? But no. None of us are capable of following and adhering to the laws of God's holiness. For this reason, God ends this precious book with a clear statement about our inability. Turn with me, if you would, on the theme of the book of remembrance to Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, God brings Moses up to the mountain, Horeb or, or Sinai. And God gives Moses the law so that his people would be holy, so that his people would be set apart, so that his people would lovingly obey him. 
And Moses, as you all know, goes down the mountain. And what does he find the people of Israel doing? They haven't even got the law and they're already breaking it. They've made a golden calf. And at verse 30 of Exodus 32, we see this interchange. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. You see that? Moses already in in his form, anytime we see the Mosaic covenant, there's a condemnation. Moses is, is saying, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Sorry, Moses. Not a chance. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And look what Moses says in verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. You see that? Moses, as a representative, as a mediator for his people, sees their egregious sin, steps before God, and says, perhaps you'll allow me to make atonement for your people. Perhaps you would remove my name from your book of remembrance, that theirs would be included. But look what God's response is, verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. You see that? There's a, this whole idea of a book of remembrance highlights our inability. Nobody gets to say whose name is written in this book. I'll tell you ever so briefly that there are false religions, if you do searching on the internet, and I discourage you from doing this, that have taken this idea of book of remembrance, coupled with the last book of the verse of Malachi, the last verse of, of that book, and have come up with a scheme by which they believe a book of remembrance needs to have the name of every human being who has lived and died since Adam. And when they complete this book of remembrance, God can complete his plan and bring about the end events. But that false teaching underscores what's really clear about this book. This book of remembrance, which implies salvation, underscores our inability without Jesus Christ. Moses wanted to make sure that his people's names was written in that book, but only God is able to do that. Consider Jesus Christ as he talks to his 72 that are sent out. The 72 go out, and they say, this is really great, Jesus. All of the demons and the spirits are subject to us. You know what Jesus says to them? Don't rejoice about that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And he spoke with that authority. Or consider the thief crucified along the side of our Savior, who says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Christ doesn't say, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. But he speaks with the authority of the uncreated one, of the Savior. He says, surely today you will be with me in paradise. That book of remembrance we will come to see again later on as we move through today. That is the book written by the Lamb. Only he is able. Only he is able. Returning to Malachi Chapter 3, verse 16, this book of remembrance is written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. 
So we see here that, that God's people respond with conviction as covenant breakers. We see that God in his faithfulness hears them and forgives them. And now when, here's when God starts to, to turn this around and he starts to talk about his faithfulness and give us promises. Verse 17 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You see, this is a, a promise that God is making and, and he's addressing the fact that he's going to make up a people set apart for himself. Before we go into that, the Elijah thing, this whole forerunner of his first advent is key. As we were reminded, when the prophet Malachi talks about one who comes like Elijah, we've seen already that this is referring to John the Baptist, one who would come before Christ, make a way, and prepare the people to repent. Now, why Elijah? The, the people of, of Israel had a bit of a problem with this concept of Elijah. The big thing that they remembered about Elijah was that Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into a chariot of fire and disappeared. And so anytime they saw Elijah, they got their, their head wrapped around this idea that Elijah's coming back. This is a, a really big deal. But the purpose and the role of Elijah was one that Christ, throughout his story of redemptive history, has laid out. What do we know about Elijah? Well, first of all, Elijah was a messenger of repentance. That was his role. He spoke out against idolatry. He confronted the prophets of Baal. And he stood before the people of Israel and he declared that they only had one God. Only this God, only their God was holy. And as he, he stood before the prophets of Baal, he prepared a, an altar with a sacrifice on it. Notably, he didn't do that in the temple. He did that where God told him to. And he went to great lengths to make sure that the fire and the wood was well doused with water. And you all recall that exchange between Elijah and those false prophets. And God, in response to Elijah's example of repentance, acts. And he accepts that sacrifice. He sent down fire from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice and even the, the stones that it was placed upon. We also know about Elijah, that he had a, a special ministry in proclaiming the salvation of God outside of the people of Israel, which is an important theme of this book of Malachi. In fact, Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, makes a statement about the ministry of Elijah that's worth noting. Jesus says, beginning at verse 25 of Luke chapter 4, he says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
You see that? Elijah was a, a messenger of God's salvation to those outside of what is national Israel. This is critical because John the Baptist came to proclaim a light to the Gentiles so that God's name would be great among the nations. Those are just a, a few things that we know about Elijah, and we know with clarity, as Brother Sean read for us this morning, that God spoke to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, and he explains to Zechariah that his son, John the Baptist, would have this special role and that he would turn the many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's what God was promising with his advent, that first the forerunner would come, and he came. Zechariah himself found it hard to believe. He was left literally speechless. But John the Baptist came to declare the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. We see this with remarkable clarity in verse 17. The promise is that when Messiah comes, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Now, I want to point something out here. The various translations have a hard time with treasured possession. John Calvin, in his commentary, uses the word peculiar possession. It's an interesting word. The idea is to gather up out of. We see that throughout how God worked with his people. He, he drew them out. He called even those who were foreigners, even those who were far away and dead in their sin, and assembles them together to be his peculiar possession. That's what the church is. Thought about greeting you all this morning. Good morning, peculiar possession. And that might seem appropriate some days, right? But that's what God is doing. Through Christ, he made for himself a people. Those who are not a people, as we saw in Ephesians, he made into a people. That's God's promise. He has come and he has done that. There's the already. We'll get to the not yet, but not, not yet. In verse 17, the prophet Malachi continues to go on and he says, as he speaks for God, he says, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. This is an incredible statement. What he's talking about here is the Levitical priests will be able to offer service to the Lord in a way that is acceptable. And we know throughout the book that their service wasn't acceptable. But God makes this statement, I will, I will spare them, those who fear me, as a man spares his son who serves him. And I didn't get this. I spent some time studying it and read again from, from John Calvin. And John Calvin makes the interesting statement of the difference between a son and a servant. If anyone's ever worked at a small business before, you'll know that sometimes the boss's son gets away with just a little bit more. Right? Sometimes, if, a, if an employee or a servant acts in a certain way, they get let go. But the son, his flaws are overlooked. And that's what God is saying of his people, that all the flaws of my people, I will overlook them and I'll spare them like a son. 
Now, you don't need my help to make the, con- make the connection between the fact that Christ, as the Son of God, was not spared. He was not spared. He was given over in our place so that our service would be accepted. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 32? This is the promise of the the advent of this Messiah, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 32 of Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the, the remarkable unfolding of the gospel. The promise kept. As Malachi would close and the gap of of silence would come, there were no prophets, there were no messengers. God's people were experiencing a famine. And not like a famine in Elijah's day, or not like a famine in Joel's day, but a famine for the word of God. There were some like like Simeon who would hold the the Christ child in his hands and say, the silence has been broken. The Messiah has come. And Christ did come. And he came as the, the son of the master. Remember how we started this book? God says, if I am father, where is my honor? If I am master, where is my fear? And so he sends his only son, his perfect son, his son that honored him, his son that feared him, his son that is obedient even to death on a cross. But did he spare him? He spared him not, so that we might be spared. Look at that again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And because of that, look at verse 33. Keep in mind, all that we've seen through Malachi, these are accusations, legal charges against God's people. And look what Paul says, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you see that incredible connection? Do you see what God has done? He has not spared his own son. He came in human form, surrendered his life, so that no charge would be brought against us. Where Moses says, hey, blot my name out so that they can be written in. God says, no, Moses. But Jesus came and he did that. I'll lay down my life for them, that their name might be written for eternity in my blood. It is God who justifies. Who then is to condemn? Says Paul. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. It wasn't just the the fact that God sent Christ to, to lay down the life of Jesus, but that he empowered him to take it up again. The hope of the saints of old. The the promise of God made complete through the empty tomb. Christ laid down his life and and took it up again. 
And it says, more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Moses, the Mosaic covenant, shows that he was unable to be an, a mediator, an intercessor. But what does God's word tell us? There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. That is the promise that God made through all of his prophets, through all of his messengers, and that we would see that, that we would know that, that we would experience that. Because of that, we have a confidence in his promise. And the the question that Paul asks in verse 35 of Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Charges cannot be brought against us for those of us who repent and turn to Jesus Christ. For those of us who place our confidence in the one who was not spared, that forgiveness of our sins is ours. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Going back to Malachi chapter 3, we see that in verse 17, this being spared as a man spares his son who serves him. In verse 18 of chapter 3, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. That distinction is made only because God looks at us through Jesus Christ. That's a promise that God will make that distinction. Who's righteous among us? None. Church, we know this well. There is none righteous, no, not one. The heart is deceitful and wicked. We are completely in need of Jesus Christ. If Scripture ended at Malachi, we'd have a pretty significant problem, would we not? We would have an eternal problem. But it didn't end there. Christ came. And because of that, when he looks on us, he sees not our unrighteousness. He sees not our wickedness. He sees not our sin. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he sees his son that he did not spare. Praise God for that. And even still, we understand that there are are other promises that are made to us as New Covenant believers that are not yet fulfilled, the already and the not yet. Let's look at chapter 4 together. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day when I act. This is an unusual text to unpack, and it's difficult to understand. There's some terminologies in here that are unique to this portion of Scripture. I want to direct your attention to verse 2 for a moment, and then we'll unpack this all together. The statement is made, but for, though, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This is a peculiar term that we don't find elsewhere in Scripture. We actually sang it in Hark the Herald Angels Sing this morning. The sun of righteousness, what does that mean? Well, historical context is important to us. God's people in the day of Malachi had been brought out of captivity. They were originally under the hand of the, the Babylonians, 
And God, as he makes kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, would cause the, the decline of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Persian Empire. And the, the Medes and the Persians had a particular god in that day. This was the god of, of Darius, who in fact had in some ways shown favor to God's people. And their god was a god called Asura Mazda. And you may have seen this at various museums, and it looks a lot like, the, like a disc, like a sun with outstretched wings. This god in that day was held to be the, the uncreated one. It was held to be the god of the king of the Persians. And so there was a particular pressure and a particular draw towards that false religion. So God, our God, the uncreated one, takes a bit of a, a pop shot at this foreign God. That's what we see here. For the sake of Bible trivia, the, uh, the outstretched arm and the wings and the name Mazda is actually borrowed by a Japanese auto manufacturer, and you can actually see that on some cars out in the parking lot. A Persian God that you're driving around. <clears throat> but this idea of the sun rising in its wings is one that God will uniquely bring back to us in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, beginning at, at verse 68, you find Zechariah's prayer. Okay, John the Baptist has been born. His, Zechariah's speech is restored to him. And he cries out in song to the Lord. And as he does that, he makes a, a really remarkable statement. Let's read the, the whole prayer together because this all points us to the advent of Jesus. Beginning at verse 68 of Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. In the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. You see that? The, the words of Zechariah, Bring it back and tie us back to this sunrise, this sun of righteousness who will come with healing in his wings. And you'll notice in this particular verse that that sunrise comes to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. That sunrise, that dawn took place as Christ visited earth. Emmanuel But all this also points to the double meaning. We talked about how prophecy sometimes has two meanings. We can look to Christ in his first advent as that hill with mercy and the cross 
perched atop there. But there's also a, another mountain in the distance, and that is the mountain of God's justice, the mountain of God's judgment. And so because of that, when we understand this sunrise, this incredible statement by which God taunts a false god and attributes this to Jesus Christ, Jesus is coming first to be light into those in the darkness. But he's coming a second time. And that's coming to be a consuming fire. Throughout Scripture, we understand that fire is used first to indicate refinement and purification. Back in Malachi, we see this idea in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He referring to Jesus, will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. His first advent, he comes to purify for himself a peculiar possession, a people, a priesthood. But at his second advent, he'll come as a consuming fire. And that's what we see in verse 1 of Malachi chapter 4. We see this admonition that Christ the judge is coming again. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is a clear warning. If you're here today and you haven't recognized that Christ gave himself up, that God did not spare his son, Jesus Christ, to, to die in your place, then you need to be aware that when Christ comes again, as he will, because all of the other promises we've seen have, he's been faithful to complete them, amen? He's been faithful to all these promises. He promises he's coming again. And the second time, there won't be an opportunity to repent. There won't be an opportunity to turn. Throughout Scripture, there's time and time again where God's people are given the opportunity to repent. And there's the promise that he'll pay attention and hear them and offer salvation. But that's a limited time offer. And that's what this ending to this precious prophetic book is telling us. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. In Luke chapter 3 that we read earlier today, we see John the Baptist making this clear statement. You want to take a look at it? Luke chapter 3, verse 17, the forerunner of the Messiah is, is going about and he's baptizing them. And he's explaining that his baptism is, is nothing like the baptism that's coming. And in verse 17, we see John the Baptist saying of Christ, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You, you see this? This is a separation of the wheat and the chaff, the part that is redeemed by the Lord and the part that's destroyed. Throughout Scripture, you can choose your analogy. There's the, the wheat and the tares. There's the wheat and the chaff. There's the sheep and the goats. There's the sinners and the saints. Describe it how you may, God's word is crystal clear. 
There are those who are seen having been washed by the blood of Jesus and those who are not. And if you're not, the warning, may it be clear to you this morning, turn to Jesus. Verse 18 of Luke chapter 3 says, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. You see, the good news and the bad news, right there together. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to give us an opportunity to hear the good news and flee from the bad news. And do that before it's too late. Seek the Lord while he may be found. As we move back to this future promise of Christ's coming, we see that the day is coming and that the evildoers will be burned by stubble. And then verse 2, we'll look at that again. It says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And the next part of this verse says, And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Doing a quick survey, I don't think anyone in this room owns a cow. I don't know if anyone has ever owned a cow, but did a little bit of uh, learning on what this expression might look like. Like a, like a calf leaping from a stall. It's in one of my favorite Josh Garrel songs. It talks about a calf leaping from a stall. And a calf in its first birth drops to the floor and it, and it stands with its legs bow-legged and in complete being carefree frolics about with joy unencumbered. It, it stands for the first time with joy and exuberance. And to see that used as an example of what a, a redeemed believer might experience on that final day is incredible. A, a giddy calf, firstborn, having been gifted life. What an incredible picture that, that Scripture gives us. And for those of us who are found in Christ, that's our promise. Uncontrollable joy. You won't even know what to say because of what he's accomplished for us. Verse 3 of chapter 4 also talks about vindication for those who are in Christ, a vindication of our enemies. As we read through the Psalms and survey Scripture, that vindication is part of God's future promise. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. The distinction between the righteous and the wicked, only because of Jesus Christ. The distinction between one who is consumed by fire or refined by fire is only because of Jesus Christ. I want to close us with a text I've used more than a couple of times as we move through the book of Malachi, and that's in Revelation chapter 21. This is the, the not yet. Praise God for the already Christ has come. That's what we sing of. That's what we celebrate. And he's coming again. And he's going to gather up his peculiar people. He's going to put us together, not for a limited time, but for all of eternity. And then all of his promises will be fulfilled. Look at verse 22 of Revelation chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Ponder this for just a second. We started out this morning reading of, of Solomon's temple, 
And then we saw again in Malachi's day, the temple rebuilt. But ultimately, our temple is the Lord God Almighty and the crucified and risen Lamb. And verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The, the sunrise with healing in its wings, the place that God promises that his name will be praised from where the sun sets, from where the sun rises to the sun sets, that's all done. It'll be praising eternally. No need for sun. He himself will be our light. And look at verse 24 of Revelation 21. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Praise God, all of that. It's already been done, and it's yet awaiting us. Praise God for that. As we end this precious study of the book of Malachi together, may your hearts be filled with joy like a calf leaping from a stall because of the salvation that is already yours that is yet to be experienced. Church, it has been a tremendous joy to study this book and to understand that although we are not faithful, he is. And that's clearly seen through what Christ has done for us. Celebrate that. Be joyful in that. Let's go before him and thank him for his great and precious promises. Father God, we praise you that your promises are always kept. We praise you that you are a God who keeps covenant faithfulness with hesed love from generation to generation. We thank you that all that was shown us about the Christ was made evidence on the cross. That you did not spare your son, but you gave him up for us. And that your son took up his life again, that we might have life everlasting. Might we celebrate that? Might we tell of that to anyone that we would meet? That you are faithful, that you are good. In the matchless name of your son Jesus, that we'll sing to for ages. Amen. God bless you.